Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, and I am very excited today to be here with John Zaratsky. John, welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast. Thanks for having me. It's exciting. John is technology designer, uh, author of a couple of books, including Sprint, Solve Big Problems and Test New Ideas in Just Five Days, and Make Time, How to Focus on What Matters Every Day. I actually met John, it was almost exactly two years ago. Yeah. I had just moved to Milwaukee and my husband, Randy, and I went to one of these networking, it was like a startup event. And John was the speaker that <laughs> evening. I think you were uh, socializing Make Time. Right? Yeah, that was right before Make Time came out. Okay. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I tend to be a pretty harsh critic of other people's presentations, <laughs> but I just remember he got up on stage and I was like, hey, this guy's got some pretty slick looking slides. He also said some magic words while he was talking that piqued my interest, including San Francisco. So he and his wife, Michelle, had just moved from San Francisco to Milwaukee, which is the same trek that Randy and I had made. <laughs> Not a very popular Yeah, exactly. Route. So I knew that we'd have that in common. And also I learned through the course of his presentation that he worked at Google and had actually just recently left Google Ventures where he'd been working with all sorts of different companies. And we'll talk more about that. Uh, but I knew from that that we would have a ton in common. And so we chatted for a bit after the session and became friends. And I am very excited to be here with you finally doing a recorded version of a conversation <laughs> that we can share with others. Yeah. So a couple of things to point out that are special about today's session. One is the fact that John and I are actually physically in the same room together, <laughs> uh, which I feel like is worth calling out because it doesn't happen that often these days. Yeah, it doesn't happen these days, but I feel like in general, I mean, if you limit your interview subjects to people who you, you can be in the same room with, you're not, uh, you're not giving the audience the, the most you can. So totally, we're, we're super lucky on this one. Yes. And the second cool thing is we're actually broadcasting live, which means for those who are tuning in live, you get to help steer our conversation. And the way you'll do that is through your questions, which you can add at any point in time through the chat window. I'll be following that as we talk. And I've got some questions for John of my own, but we'll be weaving yours into our conversation as well. And then we'll make sure that we have some dedicated time for questions a little bit later in the session. So with that, I set a little bit of context, but I want to go deeper. I love a good origin story. <laughs> so I'm curious if you could share with us, how do you go from being small town Wisconsin kid to mm -hmm. working with some of the most innovative companies on the planet, writing a couple of best-selling books? Can you tell us about your path? Yeah. I mean, it's mostly luck. It's, I think the result of a little bit of work probably. Yeah. Way. I mean, yeah, definitely. I think, I think work is the given, you know, we, we should assume that everybody is going to make a good faith effort to do their best and show up and, and do the work that, that matters to them and to the, to their job. But, you know, I, I had this weird pattern that showed up again and again in my career and in my life, which is that I, I tend to form plans for things 
And then as the as the plan, you know, sort of the the first step of the plan or the big moment of the plan approaches, some other opportunity that I didn't plan for presents itself, and I end up taking the fork in the road and doing the other thing, and and that ends up being really really interesting. So you know, growing up as a, as a kid in a small town, I was like so many other you know kids who kind of grew up in the '80s and '90s. I was fascinated by computers and technology and sort of this new world that was that was you know being built around us and i was one thing that was kind of odd and lucky was that my my grandfather was actually really into computers so he was like an early like you know home built you know buy the, get the kit to put the computer together so i was very lucky to have him like and you were you close know, with your grandfather yeah yeah and we were really close and so he was always giving me things and showing me things so i was kind of kind of had that and at the same time um you know, living sort of in the country was always into tinkering with things and building things and taking things apart and putting them back together or whatever and so when it was time to sort of figure out what my career was going to be and I was going to study in college, my parents encouraged me to go into engineering because that's a reasonable path to take. And also because my family has a manufacturing business, they make rivets and machines that put rivets in things. So very old school, like, you know, manufacturing, engineering. And so they're like, you should go into engineering. Like that makes a lot of sense. Long story short, I hated studying engineering. I don't know if I would have liked being an engineer, but I did not like studying it in college. So I ended up exploring a bunch of stuff, got into uh, like web design, web development. Um, this was like the late 90s, early 2000s when like blogging was first a thing. Mm-hmm. And so there was, there was like this big kind of revolution of self-expression and self-publishing on the web. And, uh, and then my, my first job out of college was working at a tech startup in Chicago. I had, I had been doing a bit of web design on my own. I had a little design agency. And, and so when I was applying for, for real jobs, I applied for a bunch of like agency jobs. I was going to move from Madison, Wisconsin to Chicago and work in the the advertising world of, of Chicago. And I, on a whim, I applied for this one job that was at a tech company. And that was the one job that I got. I didn't get any of those agency jobs. Okay. And then that company was acquired by Google and then just sort of, you know, moved from, from position to position within Google. And, um, and yeah, I think the sort of the most transformative part of my career was the years I spent at Google Ventures, where I was in this role where after we made an investment in a company, and just in case, you know, anybody doesn't know about Google Ventures, it's a venture capital firm that's funded by Google. So it's basically where Google takes some of their extra money and they invest it into independent companies. So I wasn't working on anything Google related. It was all these, these outside companies. But after we made an investment, I would go and work with them and basically kind of help them navigate the uncertainty of of being a new business. And, and they're like, we have this idea for this product, but we don't quite know how it should look or how it should work. And we think it might be good for these customers, but we don't quite know how to reach them. And I just sort of like help them do all those things. And that's what led to the design sprint process, because while at first it was very haphazard and, well, let me just give you some advice or let me make a mock-up for you. We realized that as, as the team continued to invest in more and more and more startups, we would need sort of a scalable, repeatable process, a recipe really for helping those companies. And so that's what led us to develop the, the design sprint. And can you talk about the parts of the sprint, right? Mm-hmm. What does the sprint look like and what is the goal? And yeah. who should do one? Yeah. So the design sprint process really is for any team that is starting something big and new. So when you're at that point at the beginning of the project, when you have more questions than answers, 
that's a great time to run a design sprint. And it's a, it's a five-day process. The way that we have sort of developed it and documented it, it's super structured so that you don't have to think about the process. You don't have to think about how you're working while you're doing it. You can just focus on the content of your work. The first day is all about establishing a shared understanding in the team. We call it mapping. So mapping out the problem. The second day is about generating ideas by sketching individually and capturing those ideas on paper. The third day is deciding which of those ideas you think are best. The fourth day, Thursday, typically, we build a prototype. So in just in one day, a really, really rapid, realistic looking, but ultimately fake, you know, non-functional prototype of, of our idea. And then the, the final day of the sprint on Friday, we test it with real customers. And so it's sort of like you get to travel into the future and you get to see like, okay, we haven't built this product. We haven't launched this marketing campaign. We haven't whatever, but we're going to, we're going to get a chance to see what it would be like if this thing already existed and see it through the eyes of our customers and then bring that back into the present day so that we can make better decisions about what we want to focus on as a team, what we want to do. You've just quickly listed off you know, five things over the course of five days and, and made it sound like a really simple thing. But these <laughs> five things, like each of the things that you described on the days are huge or what sound like huge amounts of effort. Yeah. How do you actually fit all of this into five days? I think the most important factor is focus. So if you think about the typical work day, whether you're physically in an office or you're working from home, as most of us are these days, it is, I think, defined by distraction. It's, you know, your schedule is fragmented. It's, it's really about what can I do to fit my work into these little gaps between the meetings that I have, right? And so one of the, the simplest but most powerful things that we do when we plan a design sprint is we say for one week from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. each day that week, there are no other meetings. There's no other, there's no email. There's like- Do you have people actually like drop their device in a bucket on the way we in? We don't go or? quite that extreme, okay. but basically, you know, we, we, we set the ground rules at the beginning. We say, this is when we're going to do the breaks. This is when we're going to be done for the day. And so if you need to check email, if you need to make a call, if you desperately have to tweet something, <laughs> you know, you can step outside of the room or you can wait till a break or whatever. But, but you know, that, that one thing, it sounds simple. I mean, it, it is simple. It's just, it just is a, a step that most people don't take if they don't have that like external reason or forcing sure. function. But simply saying, we're going to focus on this project because it's the most important. And it's the only thing we're going to focus on for this period of time allows you to get a lot done. And then we combine that with a very, very clear structure, a recipe. We, we often use this metaphor of a recipe because we think it, you know, it, it, it's such a perfect fit. You know, obviously, if you are a master baker, a master chef, you don't need to follow recipes. You make it up as you go. But if you are, are new to, you know, you're creating something for the first time, it's helpful to have a recipe. Somebody say, do it this way. And we've tested it a thousand times and we're pretty sure it's going to work out for you. So that combination of, of just saying, making that decision to say, we're going to focus on this and only this. And then having that recipe that you can confidently follow because you know that it's been proven by so many other teams. That's kind of the, the non-secret secret to getting all that stuff done in five days. Yeah. The focus is an interesting point, right? Because I think we don't fully recognize how much emails and the little distractions eat up or how much time they eat up yeah. the day. Yeah. Time, energy, attention. There's a lot of really interesting research around this stuff. There's 
for example, there, there was a study that sort of measured people who were engaged in a, a deep focused task. I don't remember what the exact task was. And they got interrupted. And then they measured how long it took them to get back to the same level of productivity on that focused task. Yeah. And it took them 23 minutes which seems like forever. Yeah. And at first when I heard it, I was like, that, that can't possibly be true. Because I, you know, of course, we all believe that we're great at multitasking. So I think, oh, if I'm writing and somebody pops in and says, hey, can I ask you a question? I think, oh yeah, I'll just get back to writing, no problem. But then I thought a little bit more about it. And I was like, you know, you get to a depth when you're in the zone doing some focused creative work that is difficult to get back to. Mm -hmm. So if you get pulled out of that by an interruption, by a distraction, it really is hard to get back in. And, and you know, I use the example of somebody popping into your office, but, you know, a, a lot of times we, we, we interrupt ourselves, essentially, by leaving our email open in another window yeah. or by having Twitter on our phone with notifications turned on or whatever. And so just kind of creating those barriers around distraction, whether it's through something like Design Sprint or whether it's through changes that we make to our own workspace, can, can enable us to get the benefit of that focus without losing time and losing energy to those distractions. So focus is one ingredient, let's say, in the recipe yeah. for successful sprints. What are some of the other ingredients? Yeah. And I'm curious, do people, because you, you described having a, a problem or a project at the, onset of the sprint, at the onset of the sprint, does it have to be well-defined at the beginning or is there some time up front where, where you help teams narrow in on that? It doesn't have to be super well-defined. The first day is really about defining the problem, understanding the problem. And it's something that we do collaboratively because if you have a meeting and you get a bunch of people in a room to talk about a thing, you know, let's say you're running a SaaS business and you have a certain number of custom, potential customers that hit your website every day, and then there's a conversion rate. You know, one percent of them become customers. You might say, you know, we got to get this number to two percent. So you get the team together and you start talking about what to do, mm -hmm. possible solutions. And one of the things that happens is that everybody in that room, they already have their own sort of mental map. They already have their own internal understanding of what the problem is and what, what's going on. And so the reason that we do this sort of building a map collaboratively on Monday is that we want to get everybody's internal map, their mental map. We want to get that out, put it on a whiteboard or on paper or whatever, and get everybody on the same page. So defining the problem. And is, when you're facilitating, are you physically drawing that map out so yeah. others can see it? Yeah. So the, the job of the facilitator in a design sprint, it's like partially sort of note taker, you know, sort of transcribing the, the group's brain onto a whiteboard, but also kind of a, a conversation moderator, knowing when to ask questions, knowing when to push, knowing when to cut things off sometime, you know, record them and move on. So yeah, having, you were asking about ingredients and I think, you know, having a really clear, um, well, I shouldn't say really clear, having a, a problem or a challenge or an opportunity to tackle as a team that the team agrees is important. They agree it's worth spending five days on, mm -hmm. even if they don't exactly know all the details of it just yet, but, but also having a, a problem or an opportunity that where there's a lot of uncertainty because if you know what to do, yeah. you know, if there's a playbook, you somebody's done it before, your company's done it before, you've done it before as an individual, you don't need to do this whole design sprint thing. Like you can just get to work. And, you know, in in a lot of the, with a lot of the technology companies that I've worked with, 
a good example of this is like refactoring or re-architecting a, a code base, you know, sort of rewriting the code that powers a particular piece of software. And, you know, there's always things that will go wrong, things that you don't anticipate. But, but for the most part, like if you start on a project like that, you sort of like, yeah, we understand the problems today. We know what to do to make them better. If I was starting from scratch today, I'd do it this way. And you can estimate, oh, it's going to save us this much money or it's going to be this much more efficient or faster or whatever. Yeah. You can just kind of like get to work and do it. Plan it out yeah. and execute. Right? Yeah. So you need, it needs to be really a big problem or a big opportunity. And it needs to be, you know, have a high degree of uncertainty. So everybody's willing to put in the time to go through this process, which is really about sort of navigating that uncertainty. Well, and talk about too, so you start with uncertainty, but by the end of the week, that uncertainty has gone down, hopefully. Yeah, right? hopefully. <laughs> or at least it's like shifted somewhere else. So okay. on, one of the things we do on Monday, the first day of the sprint is write down a list of questions. And these really are, are sort of our big unknowns or our, sometimes they're like our assumptions that we have. Like to give you an example, I've done a couple of projects with uh, sort of financial apps. And one in particular with this company called Digit, their app was something that you would connect to your bank account and it would sort of monitor um, when money, you know, comes and goes from your account. And then it would automatically move small amounts to savings when you can afford to, to set money aside. And this is for people who are kind of just above paycheck to paycheck where saving money for them is a real challenge. They may not have a lot of money in savings, but to, to go from zero to having a buffer of a couple hundred dollars can make a huge difference. Yeah. But in order for somebody to use that product, you have to build a high level of trust because the first thing you do when you start using Digit is connect it to your bank account. And so it's like, wow, you want my bank account login? So in this case, like one of their assumptions was, okay, we're going to be able to get we're going to be able to convince people to give us their bank login. And so our top sprint question that week was, can we build trust with customers? Period. You know, can, can we build trust fast enough so that they will be willing to, to give us this information and sign up? And so then the rest of the week is really an effort to try to answer that question. And so some questions you do answer in that particular sprint. It was like, yeah, I think we can build the trust that we need to get people to sign up. Some questions, some other questions may be unanswered. Mm -hmm. Some may have a, the answer you don't want to hear, like, will people be willing to pay for it? Doesn't really seem like it, maybe. And then there are, there are totally new questions that you didn't realize that you should have been asking at the yeah. beginning of the week. And so it almost is like a to-do list for the project. It's like, okay, we wrote down some stuff on the to-do list. We checked off some of the items. Yeah. Some of the items require more work. Other items are going to, you know, going to be added to the list, but we're just going to keep working on it. We're just going to keep cranking through it, using, you know, these ideas of of capturing, you know, by sketching, of prototyping, of testing with customers to try to continue answer questions and reduce uncertainty. And can you talk a bit about? We've touched upon a couple of times, but the the sketching piece. Yeah. Uh, in the book, it talks about how important paper and post-it notes and whiteboards and these really sort of tactile tools yeah. for the course of the week. Can yeah. you talk more about the importance of keeping low tech and actually getting everybody to draw? Yeah, yeah. I think when most teams go to sort of generate or capture ideas, they'll there's a few kind of default modes that they fall into. One is the group brainstorm, which is, you know, we've we've all done it. It's, you know, a bunch of people sitting around, a bunch of people on a Zoom call, whatever, just kind of shouting out ideas. And there's there's you know, there's rules that you, you're, you're not supposed to criticize anybody's idea. There's no bad ideas, whatever. I love this in the book. It's like, but no, the brainstorms don't work. Like it's exactly. not a free for all where you throw out crappy yeah. ideas. And the crazy <laughs> thing is like, 
brainstorms are fun, but there's actually some some pretty strong academic research showing that the, the ideas that come out of a brainstorm are not particularly good. They're not particularly high quality compared to the other default that we often go into, which is what I call the lone genius, where there are certain people in the organization, they have the clout, they have the status, they have the tools, whatever. We say, you, you go figure it out. You're the designer, you're the engineer, you're the whatever it is, you go figure it out, bring back your idea. And that that is good, but but it's got it's got its problems too, because it's not inclusive. It it'll you know sort of depends on or permits only those certain people to contribute their ideas. And and I think one of the sort of you know one of the downsides that we don't often think about is that when that lone genius comes back with their idea, there's no chance for anybody's anybody else's idea to compete because sure. the lone genius they had days or weeks to create a mock-up, a prototype, a proof of concept. And so if they bring that into a meeting and say, I think we should do it this way, there may be another person in that room who legitimately does have a better idea, but them just saying it out loud is not going to be as compelling as this beautiful mock-up, this beautiful prototype. So what we wanted to do in the design sprint was find a way to engage everybody, to involve everybody, but to do it in, in a way that was sort of like it would fit within the constraints of the design sprint process. And we experimented with a ton of things and we continue to experiment with high-tech solutions and low-tech solutions, online and offline. And, and we think that that sketching is really the best way for everybody to contribute high-quality, thoughtful ideas. And, and I should say that when I say sketching, I don't necessarily mean you know a certain kind of you know dr- artistic drawing on paper. I just mean really... And when we say sketching in a design sprint, it's really any any kind of sort of individual written work. So it's any time when you say, Hold, stop the conversation, everybody grab a sheet of paper. I want you to, to capture your, your ideas. They may just be words. You know, it may just be copy for a marketing page. It may be sketches with stick figures. It may be UI layouts. It could be a million different things. But that idea of pausing the conversation, working individually to make something that's concrete that's the best way that we've found to capture ideas. Well, and it also seems to have this effect of equalizing everybody's ideas, right? Because you describe a process where you have people brainstorm on their own. I love the term in the book, work alone together, right? Where you're you're doing your own deep thinking alongside other people who are also doing the same. So it's a a shared space and I imagine a shared energy. Yeah, definitely. Well, and it's kind of like, you know, we were talking a bit about about focus and how it's so hard to, to get over the, get over the hurdle of, okay, let's focus, let's turn everything off. And so there's social pressure and social proof. When you see your boss and the person who reports to you and your peer, when you see all those people in the same room on the same sheet of paper with the same pen, scratching their head, trying to figure out what to do, like that's very freeing and very empowering. And it just just sends this message, we're going to focus right now. We're gonna we're gonna really devote our attention to this thing that we all agreed was the most important. So people do their own thinking. They do some sketches so that other people can react as well, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go through a process. Remember, I don't remember which day it was between, but where at the end of the day, people are sort of sticking everything yes. up on the walls, yep. and then people come back and start voting and yeah. you know the you know take the museum tour to understand. Yeah, the different- and that's Wednesday. So Wednesday yeah. is all about deciding. You know, imagine a design sprint where there's 10 people and maybe you get two ideas from each person, two sketches. So we have 20 ideas 
And you probably can't fit all 20 ideas into your prototype. So you have to decide which ones are best. And so that leads you into the need for group decision-making and, you know, group brainstorming can, can get ugly, but group decision-making can really, really get ugly. I mean, we've all been in those meetings where, you know, either it's just an endless debate where there's actually no decision made and yep. you know, that the decision is going to get made by somebody else behind a closed door, or there's consensus where everybody sort of nods their head. Sure, sure, sure. But nobody's really happy with that decision. Sometimes there's groupthink that takes over where everybody gets really riled up about not a very good decision or not a very good plan. And so we, you know, having seen these patterns again and again with this, the startups that we worked with at Google Ventures, but also with just our own individual experiences working with various teams, we wanted to fix group decision making. Mm -hmm. And so we, we sort of designed a structured decision making process that kind of ping pongs be between individual thought and expression of individual preference within group discussion that allows you to say, well, th this is what I thought, what do you think? And do that in a structured way, then zoom back into the individual, then zoom back out and do that a couple of times over the course of the day on Wednesday. So that by the end of the day, not only do you have a, a smaller set of, you know, we think these are the best ideas, but again, to your point about, you know, inclusion, since everybody participated in that process, it's amazing, even if their idea doesn't get chosen, they still feel really good about it. Well, and the buy-in, right, that happens as a yeah. result of being a part of it. Yeah. I, I thought one of the ways that you collect and show data over the course of the sprint is very interesting mm. to me, which were little circle stickers. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about those? Sure, yeah. We use those in a couple of ways. We do one activity that we call a heat map. So your your listeners and viewers will be familiar with a heat map. And so what we do is is we create a heat map that basically shows the parts of each sketch or each idea that people are drawn toward. So the the elements, it might not be the the overall sketch. It might just be a, one little UI element or a button or a label, but it's a really lightweight way for people to say, I like this. And so we use tiny little, I think they're they're quarter inch sticky dots. And we tell people that they are infinite. So we, we give people like 30 of them. Uh, and this is all how we do sprints in person. And there's, you know, there's adaptations for doing it virtually, which we can talk about, but if you want, but, but we give people like 30 of them, we say, spend these with abandon, you know, anytime you see anything that you like, put a sticker down. If you run out, let us know, we'll give you more. And so by the end of in not long, 20, 30 minutes, you basically have this amazing record of this is everything that the group likes. And we get to see um, this. These are the things the group really, really likes. And then these are maybe they're just okay. Um, so we do that. And then we do sort of a, a, a limited vote where we give people only a certain number. So we start with the heat map, which is unlimited dots, yeah. but then we use larger dots and we say, you only get three. So if you had to choose only three of these ideas to put in our prototype and show to customers on Friday, which three would you want to see? Would you want to see the safest options? Would you want to see the riskiest options? Would you want to see your own? You can vote on your own. Um, and there's a role called the decider that I imagine yes. is Yes, and then the final <laughs> step is we use the sticky dots to say, okay, if there is a decision maker in this team, and most teams have one, yep. you know, I think people like to pretend that, especially when they're in something like a design sprint, they like to pretend that, it's very democratic and it's very collegial, but in reality, there's usually a decision maker. And so we identify that person. 
We ask about it before the sprint begins. And then, yeah, we say, okay, decider, you know, you've seen what the group thinks. You've seen the heat map. You've seen the the second round of voting we call a straw poll because it's a non-binding vote. Now we want you to make the call. So we will, you know, if you were the decider, we would write CK, Colin Affleck on the sticker. We would give it to you. And then you'd have, you know, you'd have time to just kind of sit and study and think and maybe ask a couple of questions to the team. Hey, why did you vote for this? Or what did you like about that? And then end of the day, Wednesday, you get to you to make the decision. Well, and it's interesting because even though this is only one factor of the week-long process, it seems like the decider obviously plays a very important role, yeah. right? Because some of the examples in the book that struck me were the ones that maybe didn't go as anticipated. And in a lot of cases, it seemed like it, it was around the decider, right? Either the decider wasn't in the room or the decider decided to go with the group yes. against <laughs> their better judgment, maybe. Yeah. And those were some of the lessons that we learned in our early sprints. We, One of the cool things was at Google Ventures, we had the opportunity to run these almost every week with a different startup. Okay. And so not only was it, we think, a better way for those teams to work together, but it was an opportunity for us to make the process itself iteratively better week after week. And so, yeah, lots of experiments, lots of, of you know failures, things that, that went wrong. And a good number of them were around not having the right people okay. or not involving people in the right way. And, and a lot of early pains, like the ones you mentioned, they came from uh, not being honest about who the decision maker was or going ahead with a sprint because it was a week that worked for us, even though the decider was on vacation or whatever. And we got we were burned enough times by that that we decided that it really was worth kind of structuring the the process on Wednesday around that decider, if the team has a strong decider, strong decision maker. And most teams do, but not all teams do. And then how do you decide who else is in the room? How do you form that team at the beginning? I think that the, I mean, there's there's a bunch of of details that are in the book about these are the kinds of people we think you need. But the yeah. the sort of high level philosophy is we don't want it to be just sort of idea people. You know, I think when people look at a room with sticky notes on the wall, they think, oh, that's the special, that's the special team. They get to go to the special room and do the special thing. It's the, it's the innovation team or it's mm-hmm. the design team or whatever. It's the new product development team. And we really want to include some of those people for sure, but we, but we really want to include the team who's actually going to be responsible for executing on this thing. Because like you mentioned, it's so important to have buy-in. That's such a big goal of the sprint is to get the whole team you know, bought in, included, and feel like they have a stake in the way that it turns out. So the, the team that goes into the design sprint is really meant to be sort of a hybrid of the people who are normally in sort of fun, thinky type roles and the people who are actually going to have to go and execute on this plan after the sprint is done. Yeah. And when I think sprint, I mean, even after reading the book, I'm thinking, you know, okay, this is something you do when you're designing hardware or software or an app, right? A a product of some sort, but that's too limiting of a way to think about it, I think. And I'm also curious if we, if we consider, you know, a lot of the people listening or watching are uh, in the analyst sort of role or doing things with data visualization, yeah. where where might we think about sprints for that sort of work? I think the, the place to start is by thinking about who your customer is. And if you're creating something that other humans are going to interact with, you have a customer, essentially. You know, they may not be somebody who's paying you, but it's a person who needs to 
understand what you're doing. They need to to engage with what you're doing. They need to feel like it's solving their problem. And so if you're you know, building dashboards or you're generating reports or, or even if you're creating a process for accepting requests and creating reports and delivering those back to your colleagues, you have a customer for that, for that thing. And so, you know, I, I think you have to remember that, that, you know, this process really only works when it's a big problem or a big opportunity. So it's not for sort of little tweaks or optimizations, but if you feel like you're facing a big issue or you're sort of at the start of something totally new, or maybe you're building out a new set of dashboards for a new product line or a new type of customer. And, and you have an idea of who your customer is. You can use these same things. You know, you can generate um, a prototype, a mock-up of that dashboard with fake data and test it with those customers. You can, you know, if if you have a, a current process internally for people to request reports or analyses, you could set up a new one using, you know, some scrappy combination of, you know, a Google form or or a spreadsheet or what, you know, something that's much more lightweight than what you normally use and get people to try that for a week and see how that goes. So I think anytime there's a customer and anytime there is a product, service, process, whatever that is delivering value to that customer, there's an opportunity to work in this way. Well, and particularly coming back to that point of uncertainty, right? Of it being big and uncertain so that you can test things yeah. and get that feedback before you undergo the full development effort yep. or whatever they can Exactly, yeah. Mohammed has a question that's uh, sort of related to this, which is what's the best way to convince leaders to follow sprints, uh, which often on the ground are hard to run in five days, he says, in corporates like banking. Mm-hmm. So how, do you get, how do you get leadership buy-in to carve out the time for this is how I'm going to slightly rephrase that yeah. question. Well, there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of elements to it. I think that if the concern is largely about getting certain executives to personally carve out the time to participate, then there are a lot of ways that you can engage those people in what we call cameo roles. So instead of having your decision maker there for six hours a day for five days, you can have them come in at certain points. And we, we spell that out in the book. And that's actually what we did with a bunch of sprints that we've run. But one that comes to mind is a couple of sprints that we did with Slack, where the CEO, Stuart Butterfield, he was, he was very involved and supportive of the sprints that we were doing. But at that point, Slack was already a major company and he just couldn't be there for all five days. So he would come in at these certain points to review what we had done and, and make a decision when necessary. So there's that part of it. The other part of the question that I hear is about you know, how to convince executives or, or management or even a team to do this at all. Yep. And you know, I, I, the caveat is that I have not had to do this a lot within large corporations. There are others in the design sprint community who have done it far more than I have. But my approach when trying to convince anybody to run a design sprint is not to focus on convincing them to run a design sprint. I think if you say, there's this design sprint thing, we got to do it. It's going to yeah. be so cool. Like, and you're like, eh, why? Like, it seems like a lot. It seems different. Like, it seems risky. But if you can identify the pain that they're feeling, yeah. if you can, if you can understand enough about sort of the organizational dynamics and you know, wow, this executive is on the hook to deliver an improvement in this metric. They're going to be measured. Their performance is going to be measured by improving this metric by the end of the quarter. And there's been no movement. Then you can say, hey, I know that this project is really important and it's kind of been at a standstill. I've got this idea for how we could pull the team together and make some progress in like a week. Just sort of an all hands on deck situation. 
let's see if we can just break the log jam and, and start to make some progress. So you can do things like that. You know, there's a lot of different sort of ways you can pitch it. You can focus on um, the sort of concrete benefit of seeing a prototype. And there's a lot of projects at a lot of companies where there's been a, a bunch of talk about an idea, but there hasn't been so much work done on making it real. And so if you could say, hey, I think there's a way that if you give me five people for a week, I think we could have a prototype of this by the end of the week. Like, I think you, you could actually see it and click that through it. That we could show potential customers exactly. and collect data. Yeah. yeah. So that's another one. I, you know, I, there's, there's plenty of other examples, but I think the sort of core philosophy is, is not to sort of pitch it head on, but to identify just as you would when you're selling anything, you know, identify the, the pain, identify the problem and, and position your thing as a solution to that. And would you take it a step further? And I'm going to phrase this as a leading question because it is to say that if you couldn't get that, if that leadership were key and you couldn't get them on board to run the sprint, that you probably shouldn't run the sprint or is that? Probably. Yes. Yeah. I think, I mean, We've we've heard stories of like rogue sprints and they <laughs> the risky right they're, they're maybe super sometimes risky. pays off yeah but. yeah exactly that's exactly right I mean it's classic risk reward you know uh, the chances are slim that it will work out the way that you hope but it might yeah. um, so I I mean I think you know I think there's there's the issue of just of just time and resourcing and you know does it make sense for you to spend this kind of time on this thing? And if you don't have support to do that, then you're, you're playing with fire. Um, but I think the bigger issue is, is really like what happens to that work after the sprint is done. And if you've done this rogue sprint and there's, there's not organizational support for moving forward with the solution, you've set yourself up for failure because not only did you do this thing you weren't supposed to do, but the thing that you produced is not going to go anywhere. And that sucks. And then the, um, the team who was part of it, they went from being super excited and super empowered to now feeling totally demoralized because they did this cool sprint and then the idea didn't go anywhere. So, you know, there will always be people who hear everything I just said and do it anyway. And those are the rebels among us and God love them. But, <laughs> but I think I agree with your leading question that you probably shouldn't do it. It's really important to have that decision maker involved. All right, here's a question from Jennifer who says, hello from Milwaukee. Hi, Jennifer. Uh, she says, if teams have limited time, what's the absolute shortest amount of time you've been able to run a successful sprint? What could be amended in the schedule? The shortest non-crazy way to run a sprint is in four days. And in fact, this is um, the design firm AJ and Smart, who's based in Berlin and has done a lot of work to popularize design sprints that's actually the process that they recommend is a four-day process. Um, I have personally done several four-day sprints. I actually did a sprint where the first day, we were going to do five days. The first day on Monday, we got to the end of the day and the team was like, the, the leaders, of the, the, it was like the CEO of the company was like, I think we're doing the wrong sprint. Oh no! Like, I think we have, like, these were all great conversations, but I think we ended up in the wrong place. Okay. And so we started like over. Like after everyone had left on Monday? Uh, the team was still in the room. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But it was sort of like at the final moment. So we started over. On Tuesday morning, we just just reset everything. So I, so I, I know that it can be done in, in four days. Another option is to break off the testing or the prototyping. That, that creates its own challenges, its own issues. And, and in my opinion, if you're not building a prototyping, testing it with customers at the end of the process, it's not a design sprint. You know, it's a, 
it, they're still good. You know, it's yeah. still a great way to to you know create shared understanding, a great way to to create alignment on your team, whatever. But if you're not doing those final steps, I think it's not really the same process. The other approach that I have taken in this, you know, this I think runs the risk of getting stretched out so long that you lose a lot of the benefits, but it's to do basically a deconstructed sprint. And I've done this with, actually just a couple months ago, I was doing this with a, a local um, health information startup where the, we, we basically took the sprint process and we broke it into individual pieces and sort of laid those out over a calendar because they essentially had no team. It was just the founder. It was just one person. And I was helping him out a little bit and he was pulling in people where he could, you know, finding a freelance designer, freelance copywriter. And so, you know, that can, if, if it's a difference between doing it and, and not doing it, doing the sprint and not doing it, then that can make sense. But, but at some point it takes so long that there, there might've been a better way to use that time. All right, let's shift gears a little bit. So you talked earlier about one of the reasons that sprints are successful is because of the focus, right? That the rest of our lives are, like you said, defined by distraction. And we do a lot of workshops, work with a lot of different teams and organizations. And one of the common comments we get is, well, yeah, but to do this effectively, right? To tell stories with data, it takes time. Like, where do we get more time or how do we rethink about time to, I'm getting into second book territory <laughs> now. What have you learned here? How do we make time? <laughs> well, I mean, right? Make time? Yeah. It sends it right on the cover. Other thoughts related more generally to our working day and um, whether it's efficiency or learnings or habits that individuals can make use of. Yeah. There. As a result of running all these design sprints, we got to basically go inside close to 200 different companies, work with 200 different teams, and we got to see, here's what works well, here's what doesn't work so well. And, and we started to kind of reverse engineer the, the successes that we saw. And, and when we ran a design sprint that went really well, or we worked with a team and things were great, like what was special about that? And so I've already talked about some of the things, but, but just to sort of recap them, creating barriers around distraction. So whether it's by having a rule that, you know, you're not allowed to do this thing or by physically, like you talked about putting your phone in a, in a basket or something, blocking certain apps or uninstalling certain apps, using a tool like freedom to limit your access to email or to Twitter or to the news. There's a bunch of ways you can do that, but I think the, the, the core idea is not to rely on willpower. So not to tell yourself, don't check the news, don't check the news, don't check the news, but to, to actually make it physically impossible or close to physically impossible. And so, so in that example, what is it like get rid of the news app or? Yeah, so, so in that case, you might, uh, in the case of, of the news, you might install uninstall all the dedicated news apps on your phone. You might set up Freedom, which is a website And blocker. does this mean you then live in a hole or it means you're thoughtful about when you can Well, that leads stuff. into the next principle, which is compartmentalization, which yeah. is a really long and, and sort of nerdy word for the idea of just doing one thing at a time and doing it well. And so, you know, I think when it comes to reading the news or checking in on social media or even email, which, you know, can be a very sort of surface level distracting thing that we need to do. It's valuable. It's important, but it can, it can suck up our, our time and our attention if we let it. Giving those activities certain spots that they can live in, give, you know, giving them, you know, putting 
literally scheduling them on your calendar and saying, this is my time for administrative work every afternoon to catch up. This is my email time. This is my time to read the news. Those things can help a lot because you are, when you're not doing those things, then you know that you're, you're free to do the, the work that you care about. You're free to focus because A, you've made a plan for yourself, but B, you know that later today, you're going to have time to do that other thing. And so you're not constantly sort of distracted by your own brain wondering, hey, what's going on in Twitter? Hey, what's going on in the news? I actually had to, at the beginning of the, the pandemic, there was just so much crazy news all the time that I had to create it sort of a new news plan for myself. And so what I ended up doing, and this is mostly what I'm still doing, although I've been able to to dial it back to even less frequent, but I basically created a plan for myself where I would only read the news at lunch. So only while I was eating my lunch and only on one specific device. So we had like an old iPad that we didn't really use for anything. So I would eat my lunch. I would get the iPad. I would open the New York times app and that was it. And when I got to the end of that 30 minutes or whatever, I was done eating lunch, I would put it away. And, you know, if I thought about the news later, fine, but I knew that I had that that built in time. And it really helped me, especially during a time when things were so crazy, it helped me avoid constantly checking in. So for those tuning in live, I'll just remind you, if you have questions, go ahead and put those in the chat window. All right. So we've talked about some tips for uh, eliminating distractions, right? Not counting on our willpower to do that, but actually Mm -hmm. taking steps and blocking time for things that we know we want to get to, but maybe want to put off to later. What are some other tips for organizing our day and getting stuff done? One of my favorite techniques that I've been using myself for, for years is to really design my day. So use my calendar as a plan for the things that I need to do and the things that I want to do. Um, And this requires sort of a mindset shift because I think for most of us, and I used to feel this way years ago before I, before I realized that I could use my calendar proactively, I used to feel like my calendar was just this list of all the stuff that I had to do. And I, you know, it's, it was, I didn't like my calendar, you know, it's like, okay, what, like, what's on my calendar today? Like, what meetings do I have to go to? Like, what's going on? But the calendar can actually be a really amazing tool. You know, it's like, I think it, it's, I sometimes think it's the most underrated productivity tool that we have because it's this, it's this visual representation of our time. It gives us an opportunity to structure our time around the things that, that we care about, the things that we want to do. It uh, forces us to confront the trade-offs. So if we say, you know, this week, I'm going to start going to the gym three times a week. And then you take the next step and say, well, I'm going to schedule it. And you're like, oh, I don't actually have time to go to the gym three times a week. Then it forces you, you know, that's annoying, but at least you're in a place now where you can start to make some decisions. Whereas if you had stopped at, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week, and then you fail to do it, and then you beat yourself up because you didn't have time for it. That's not a helpful or productive pattern to get into. So so really kind of designing, structuring your day proactively around the things that you care about. That's another one that can help a lot. And it's sort of a direct lesson from design sprints. And it's something that we we now encourage people to do in all those weeks they're not in the design sprint, right? So it's sort of, you know, quote unquote normal work weeks. We say, you know, as a team, get together and we call it blocking as a team. So get your team together and come to some sort of agreement about how you're going to spend your time as a team. You know, what parts of which days are for meetings, which parts of which days are for deep focused work, 
uh, which, you know, what are the parts of the week where everybody's going to get together and sort of catch up on what's going on socially or whatever, but really extending that idea of compartmentalization, of structuring your time to really design your day, design your time. That's something that can help a lot too. Well, and you talk about the highlight, right? Which mm-hmm. I imagine also comes from the sprint process where you've got this one main thing you're doing each day. Can you talk a little bit about the highlight? Sure. Yeah. So the idea with the highlight is to identify the one thing that you want to sort of bring your best attention and best energy to that day. So certainly not the only thing you're going to do. That's not realistic. And it doesn't need to be some big, huge thing. But if you if you think about how you might feel at the end of the day and you're looking back and you're saying, what was the highlight today? What was the one thing that I really was glad that I made time for? If you can start the day by identifying that and you can put that into your plan for your day, it not only helps you sort of structure your day proactively, but it gives you motivation for avoiding those distractions. And it also then at the end of the day, it sets you up for a feeling of of gratitude and satisfaction, which then just creates a positive feedback loop where you say, look, I, I did the thing I said I wanted to do. And it's because I you know, didn't check the news until noon and I still had time to catch up on my email. And that was great. And I'm going to do it again. And so well, it forces of, you to more actively prioritize the thing, yeah, right? Which yeah. sounds obvious when you say it, but we <laughs> so often don't do that. Yeah. And I think part of the, I mean, to the extent that it works for people and we've heard from from lots and lots of people who say the highlight, it's so simple, but it made a huge difference. I think to the extent it works, it's because it is relatively small. We recommend an activity that is about 60 to 90 minutes. And and we encourage people not to take it too seriously. You know, sure, if there's something that's got to get done at work, go ahead and, and do that. But it can be just you know, something that is going to be really satisfying to you. It can be something that is going to be really fun that you've been meaning to get around to. And if it doesn't work out, you can try again tomorrow. So I think having this kind of uh, low entry point, this sort of low bar for getting started with being proactive about your time is really helpful for people who are trying to change their habits. All right. So while I feel like we could chat forever and you and I actually probably will chat a little (laughs) bit more after this, we are just about out of time, which means I want to move us towards closing. Uh, If anyone has any final questions, feel free to pop those in the chat window. John, do you have any upcoming events you'd like to tell us about? Funny you should ask. (laughs) We do actually, as I'm sure many of your listeners and, and viewers know, you run amazing training workshops about data visualization. And and we've been really inspired by you and your business. And so we've started to offer virtual design sprint boot camps. And so we, um, we've kind of experimented with a few different formats and tried a few different things, but we just announced a series of three online sprint boot camps. And the first one is actually, uh, for those of, week, of you right? watching live, it's coming up yeah. this week. Yeah, it's yeah. on Thursday. And then there's one in November and there's one in December. It's a, it's a three-hour sort of um, fast-paced, intense, deep dive into exactly what it's like to run a design sprint, sort of give you the history, the background. And then we go through kind of a simulation. So it's an actual we got permission to kind of pull the materials from an actual sprint that we did with one of the Google Ventures portfolio companies. Awesome. And we take people through this, this recreation, the simulation 
of that sprint so they can experience it in real time. And so this would be best for people who are going to be facilitating or joining a sprint or all of the above? All of the above, but mostly people who are facilitators, who are thinking of leading or organizing a sprint, and especially people who are new to it, people who, who have maybe have heard of it before, are curious about it, but have never run a design sprint themselves and, and perhaps never participated in one. Um, and we've actually got for the for the, the events that are coming up, we've got a, um, a discount code. So yes. it's SWD20 for 20% off for you know any listeners or viewers um, who want to join us at the bootcamp. Awesome. So just to repeat that, John has been so kind to set up a 20% discount off of his upcoming online sprint bootcamps. So you'll enter SWD20 at checkout. John, where can people follow your work? If you want to learn more about the design sprint, our website is thesprintbook.com. Make time lives at maketime.blog. Okay. So unconventional we'll sure we uh, uh, domain. Too. But um, despite all my all my talk about avoiding distraction on Twitter, uh, probably the best way to follow me personally is just on Twitter. So awesome. <laughs> so old habits Jay die Zer. hard. Yeah. Yep. And we'll put all of this in the show notes too. Any final thoughts to share with us today? You warned me that you were going to ask for final thoughts. Yeah, which means you're supposed to have one ready to go. I know, and I completely forgot about (laughs) it until right this second. So off the top of your head, what would you like to say at this very moment? I one thing that we that we didn't quite get to talking about that's been on my mind a lot lately is sort of how you know most of my work has been with with startups, and and I you know that continues to be the, the area that I'm really interested in and really excited about. But but I I think that you know, the, the way that business works today and the way that our world works today, the types of questions that you encounter in a startup, the uncertainties, the unknowns, they never go away. You know, even when you're at a big company, I yeah. mean, you've worked somewhere for, for 10 years, 20 years. It's, we don't live in a world where you can ever figure everything out. And so I think when I'm talking to people about the design sprint and, and you know, they're sort of wondering about whether it makes sense for their company or whether how they should be approaching their work, I, I sort of like to remind people that, that it's okay if you feel like you don't have all the answers. It's okay if you feel like there's a lot of uncertainty in your work, even if it is within a big company or you're at a point in your career where you're supposed to have figured it all out. And my hope is just that by kind of rethinking the ways that we work and the ways that we spend time that I can help people sort of navigate that uncertainty. Awesome. Very good. Off the top of your head. So this has been fantastic. We learned a lot about design sprints. We learned about things that we can incorporate into our everyday. John, it has been a pleasure. Thank you very much for joining me. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Big thanks also to Randy, who no one can see, but he's behind the scenes, making sure all the cameras do what they're supposed to do and all sorts of other confusing, uh, complicated things that I don't (laughs) understand, but makes this all run smoothly. And of course, to those who are tuning in, make sure to check out John's books, sprint and make time. Also take a look at the upcoming online sprint boot camps. And again, you can enter the code SWD20 for 20% off the registration fee. And with that, thank you very much for tuning in.